If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. This month, Green Dreamer is also sponsored by my favorite tea brand, Arbor Teas, and I'm so grateful for their support during this time. They source loose leaf and organic certified teas. They use backyard compostable packaging, which they've been doing for the past 10 years, by the way. Their operations run on solar energy, and all of their efforts are offset by carbon fund. I myself only bought tea from Arbor Teas this past year. I love supporting them as a small family-owned business, and I also love gifting it to friends and family to support their well-being. To shop Arbor Teas organic teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. Climate denial has benefited tremendously from earlier episodes of corporate denial, particularly the denial around the ozone layer depleting chemicals and tobacco, because what happened was the industries that were confronting more regulation recognized that they they really needed to band together to oppose the whole idea of, of particularly environmental and, and health regulations. That was Barbara Fries, an environmental attorney, former Minnesota assistant attorney general, and author of several books, including her latest, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change. It's always helpful to reflect on the past to look at similar challenges that we've faced and what the most effective solutions were, which is why this conversation really was eye-opening for me. In looking at eight infuriating case studies of corporate denial, we connect the dots to clarify what sorts of tactics they've commonly deployed and that we can look out for across different industries and corporations today. We learn about how some of these corporate executives have even twisted realities in their minds to be able to justify what they're doing as the right thing to do. And then we ended up with some key learning lessons on how we can implement what's worked in the past to 
combat the effects of corporate denial that may originate from those few places, but that really percolate through our society and result in very long-lasting and persistent public confusion and divisiveness. So Green Dreamer, this is really a knowledge-packed episode, and if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think what got me originally interested in the environment was just being a kid in the in the 1960s and and when Earth Day, the first Earth Day happened in 1970, it was really inspiring. It was alarming because there was a lot of focus on pollution and and the problems that we were creating for ourselves. But it was inspiring because people started to really care about it and and ultimately millions of them turned up on Earth Day and and it led to the passage of all kinds of laws and and agencies to enforce those laws. So that was something that definitely inspired me at an early age. And just to make things more complicated, my father was in the chemical business. So I couldn't just see this as an issue of, of good people versus bad people where only bad people are doing bad things. I realized at an early age that the market rewarded certain kinds of behavior and punished other kinds of behavior. And sometimes not polluting cost a lot more than polluting. And so it was obvious to me at, at an early age that we needed laws. So I was really happy to see those laws passed. It was the best way that that I could think of to correct that sort of a market failure. And later I became an environmental attorney to to help try to implement and enforce some of those laws. So when you worked as an assistant attorney general, you cross-examined witnesses for the coal industry who disputed the reality of climate change, pushing back as they denied facts that threatened their company's bottom line. Can you take us back to this time and share what perhaps shocked you most from doing this work and hearing these disputes firsthand? Sure. Well, first, I should point out this was the mid-90s, and there was certainly less public awareness of climate change at the time. But there was still a lot of science out there, and indeed the world had already come together at, at the Earth Summit in 1992 and, and passed a, or agreed to a treaty where we were all going to try to work to avoid dangerous climate change. So there was a lot of science already there, even if there wasn't a lot of public awareness. And I had not never worked on climate change issues. I had been working implementing the Clean Air Act, but the Clean Air Act at that time did not address climate change at all. So this was all fairly new to me. And what really shocked me was seeing these witnesses for the coal industry who were basically urging us in Minnesota to ignore the science that the rest of the world was relying on and telling us that climate change was not going to be a problem. If it happened, it would be very mild and and living in a northern state, we'd enjoy it and it would be good for us and that the scientists arguing otherwise were essentially biased, either politically or financially. So that was pretty astonishing. I have to say on one level, 
I really hoped they were right because it was a very reassuring message. I think that the fossil fuel industry generally and, and climate deniers more broadly have a tremendous psychological advantage because people really want to believe that. But I didn't have the luxury of ignoring the evidence. And, and my client, which was the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, was relying on the, the mainstream evidence that the rest of the world was relying on from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in particular. And it became really, really clear to me that what we were being asked to ignore was not something that we could afford to ignore. It kind of astonished me that this industry, the coal industry, was having this tremendous behind-the-scenes effect on policy, even when people never really, well, in the 1990s, people were just not at all thinking about coal. When I talked about it, people would express some surprise that we even still burned coal in the United States because it's being burned and, and was then as well being burned in power plants, not in very visible locations. It, it used to be burned in people's home furnaces and in the trains and you saw it everywhere. But by then it was only being burned, pretty much only being burned by the power sector. So first of all, people didn't know it was still out there. And, and then secondly, they had no idea that the power or rather that the coal industry was going around trying to have this influence on public policy. That actually led me to write my first book, which is called Coal, A Human History, which I wrote a few years after those proceedings, partly to shine a light on, on what coal was doing now, and also partly to explore its impact on history in the past. Mm. Now, your new book, Industrial Strength Denial, looks at corporate denial through eight powerful and infuriating case studies. What were some of these eight examples you looked at as evidence of corporate denial? And what were the underlying parallels between all of these in terms of how corporate denialism actually works and gets carried out? Once I started thinking of climate denial as a social phenomenon and not just as some defect in these individuals' perspective on the world. Then I started thinking, well, okay, where has this social phenomenon taken humanity in the past? What have other industries done? How have they responded to evidence that they were causing harm? What exactly did they say? What impact did they have? And ultimately, how did society get past that if they did? So I, I went back to look at all of these different industries and, and ended up picking eight different industries that I thought were, were particularly epic and revealing stories about corporate denial. So the, the first one I explored was actually the slave trade and specifically the British slave trade, because in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was a very powerful abolition movement in Britain which sparked what I think was the first really coordinated campaign of corporate denial from all of these different industry players trying to defend the act of, of enslaving people and, and selling them then to the New World plantations, which is what the industry did. So I started there. Then I, I raced up into the 20th century and focused on the radium industry. There was a very popular industry that that convinced many, many Americans that radium was sort of a cure-all and that they should consume it, despite the fact that it was known to be this fiercely radioactive element. So I looked at the radium industry. I also looked at the automobile industry, which 
for a very long time seemed to feel it had zero responsibility to make sure that its cars were as safe as possible when they inevitably crashed. And, and of course, some fraction of them did inevitably crash. I looked also at the leaded gasoline industry, at the disputes around putting lead into gas in the first place, and then the disputes around taking it back out again. And then in, in more of the modern era, I looked at the dispute around ozone destroying chemicals. And then, of course, I had to look at the tobacco industry where where their denials have been legendary. And then I, I went a little outside my comfort zone to look at the financial crisis of 2008 and the behaviors that led up to that. And then, of course, the denials associated with it. And then finally ended up looking back at the fossil fuel industry and its climate denial. Now, is there anything about climate change denial specifically that might make it different than all the other seven cases that you looked at? One thing that's different about climate change denial is that it has spread so far beyond the fossil fuel industry. It, it clearly started out there. And I had one of the earliest experiences with that in terms of confronting the, the coal industry in the mid 90s. At that point, it was pretty much an industry driven sort of phenomenon. But then we saw it spread through society and, and particularly the political right and until it really took over the Republican Party. And now we see it in the White House. And that is not something you saw with other other kinds of denial. But I really think Climate denial has benefited tremendously from earlier episodes of corporate denial, particularly the denial around the ozone layer depleting chemicals and tobacco, because what happened was the industries that were confronting more regulation recognized that they they really needed to kind of band together to oppose the whole idea of, of particularly environmental and, and health regulations. And they ended up founding certain anti-regulatory groups and funding those groups. And, and those groups then promoted this idea that, that government didn't know what it was doing and that the science it was using to regulate industry was junk science. And that sort of found its way into right-wing media and, and then kind of spread from there so that by the time we got really serious about trying to address climate change. There was already in society this incredible distrust of science. And, and a lot of it took on this very populist tinge where they would argue, the industry would be arguing that if uh, scientists were saying that what they were doing was bad and needed to be stopped, that those scientists were part of this elite and that the elite didn't care about whoever was in their audience that they were talking to. And that general level of, of cynicism and distrust really helped, I think, kind of paralyze our country and, and enhanced the partisan divide and has made it particularly difficult to move forward on climate change. Right. And I think that is quite evident in today's political climate. And in our work to protect the environment, we face a lot of challenges. And there are certainly a lot of roadblocks that we have to overcome from a lack of political will to our economic inequalities to the inherent difficulties of changing an entire system that's set up and locked down to be reliant on fossil fuels to many individual people perhaps being unaware of how our everyday choices impact the environment and so forth. In 
the grander scheme of things, how big of an impact do you think corporate denial actually has in blocking our progress and perhaps also feeding into some of the other challenges? Because it seems to stem from one or a couple places where these corporate executives might be disputing the truth and disputing science. But then I guess, how does that ripple ripple off to creating other challenges that we face? I think corporate denial has had an enormous impact, but it has had it in part by trying to to spread through society and, and to take advantage of pre-existing divisions in society and, and to try to exploit those. So as I was talking about with the fossil fuel industry, it may just start out with the company saying, no, this isn't a problem or raising doubts about the problem. And indeed, that I think is you could legitimately say that's just a, a basic human psychological reflex. It's basic defensiveness when you're accused of something. Then it goes from being that reflex into more of a corporate strategy. And then it goes from being a corporate strategy into its own kind of little sub-industry that promotes that denial. And then it shifts from being a sub-industry into actually an ideology where you have both built up distrust generally and created sort of new tribes of people who, for example, don't believe that the government has a role in intervening in the marketplace. So I, I think it, it very much begins with corporate denial. But as with so many other things, with enough resources and really clever marketing, you can spread these attitudes throughout society. And I think that's what's happened. Mm, so the magnitude of this challenge that we're up against really is how this initial denial percolates throughout the entire society. So then we as individuals might frequently face other people who buy into those messages. And therefore, that also shapes public opinion. It might also shape the political decisions that get made and, and so on. Yes, exactly. What happens is I think the denial takes root within society, within the body politic. It creates all kinds of barriers to action. And here's what's kind of ironic here, that you can get to the point where the industry itself can abandon that denial, but the barriers they have erected over the years are still there. So, for example, most of the major oil companies right now, they don't deny that when you burn their product, you're putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. They don't deny that those gases are warming the planet or that it's critical that we take action to do something about it. And many of them will say now that they do support a price on carbon or that they support the, the Paris Agreement to dramatically reduce our emissions. That doesn't really change how they are <laughs> remaining very eager to further exploit new oil fields and, and build pipelines and, and sell their product. And it also doesn't mean that we have the laws in place that we need because other barriers that they have helped erect over the decades are still there, political barriers and social barriers. Right. I think with most of us not having any personal stakes in the fossil fuel industry, when we hear about corporate denial, it can be extremely frustrating. And we can just be like, how can you do that and be able to live with yourself to mm. the executives that are saying these things? So that leads me to ask, are these corporate executives just evil human beings who consciously know that they're lying about the harms that their corporations are causing and therefore they might be unsalvageable as people because that's just who they are? 
Or are they just so deeply entrenched in that world and the big decisions they've already committed to and made on behalf of their corporations that they've started to justify their behaviors and even are lying to themselves just to be able to look themselves in the mirror, look at their children every day and to be able to live with themselves? I think my general answer is it's the latter. They're deeply entrenched in these systems and they are are taking advantage of the human mind's remarkable ability to deny reality and and rationalize and and spin things in the right direction. I'm not going to say none of them are totally evil and and consciously lying because if you're you're inclined toward being an evil liar... There are a lot of business opportunities for you, and you may well be overrepresented in in some of these industries. But I think for for purposes of trying to figure out how to minimize this kind of behavior in the future, recognizing that we are all tribal creatures, and we are very influenced by the beliefs of those around us and the incentives of the society that we've created – Recognizing those things is really important because we're going to keep seeing this kind of denial again and again unless we can raise awareness of of how dangerous it is, of how prevalent it is, and of the need to mobilize other social forces and, and hopefully our own other psychological skills to overcome it. I think you explored some pretty wild rationalizations that some of these deniers had. Would you mind going a bit into that to share maybe how they didn't really see themselves as denying and they saw themselves as doing the right thing even? Oh, sure. Right. I mean, in fact, the pattern that we see over and over again is that companies will be accused of something or whole industries. They will not feel bad about it. They've been doing this thing for a long time. They've been socially accepted. And so they start to assume that their critics have ulterior motives. And so they criticize the opposition. Maybe they're greedy, they would think, or or, or maybe they'd argue that the opposition has some dark, sinister political motive, that that's a common criticism made. They will also start to exalt themselves and their own motives. They will deny that they have any bias at all. That's That was commonly done. And, and they'll talk about, in fact, the, their wonderful goals that have nothing to do with making a profit. So, for example, the, the British slave trade talked about how they were, in fact, rescuing Africans from Africa by bringing them to the new world. They were removing them from a worse life there. Maybe they were going to be slaves there, or they would argue that they were going to be, they would die in famine, or they were going to be executed in, in as prisoners of war, so they were going to rescue them. They claimed that the slaves were eager to be purchased and did some sort of self-marketing to show that they were capable of, of work. They claimed that they had pleasant and even festive voyages across the Atlantic, and that when they got to the to the plantations, and mainly they were talking about sugar plantations in the West Indies, they claimed that they had these comfortable lives and cute little cottages and kind of a cradle-to-grave social support network to take care of them. Uh, so their claims were were just outrageous. And, and of course, the only reason they could even begin to make them was that the British public and, and British policymakers were so far away from the industry that they couldn't see what was going on. But for example, when when the leaded gas folks were, were starting to put lead into the gasoline in the 1920s, 
the public health officials said, wait a minute, this is a terrible idea because lead is toxic and it builds up and you can have tiny, tiny exposures over time and suddenly you've got lead poisoning and, and isn't this a really bad idea? And the industry said, well, wait a minute, you're just thinking about health, but we are thinking about the progress of our civilization. We have, we're thinking about, you know, maintaining our our position among nations. We're thinking about technology generally. And, and so they they sort of cast themselves as being the champions of, of progress. Of course, the tobacco industry has cast itself as being the champions of personal freedom and responsibility, overlooking the fact that almost all smokers begin when they are less than 18 years old. And then, of course, they become addicted, which is very strongly limits their personal choices. With respect to the ozone dispute and, and the aerosols and the chlorofluorocarbons that were that were depleting the ozone layer, there we saw the industry step forward and say, we are defending free enterprise. This was during the Cold War and the Soviets were still a major enemy and, and communism was still a major threat. So they were basically accusing their critics of having these sort of sinister, maybe communist motives, but more importantly, they were going to defend free enterprise and, and business generally. So very, very often the industries spin their own motives into something much, much larger and more noble than just selling a product or making a profit. Right. So certainly there are a lot of these people who truly believe that what they're doing is the right thing to do. And there are others who might just be outright evil. I believe that at a very human level, even with a lot of people that we disagree with deeply and find horrendous and appalling, we share some very basic human desires and values. So we want safety and good health for ourselves and our loved ones. We want happiness, healthy relationships, meaning a sense of belonging, life satisfaction, healthy environments, clean water, and so forth. So I'm wondering why you think it is that we can have individual humans who are entirely capable of care, empathy, and love for their families, friends, and relatives when they're placed in that corporate environment as an executive or a leader, acting so not in line with who they might be at the core. So mm. what is it about the corporate world and maybe the power structure there that brings out and incentivizes these destructive ways of thinking and decision making that don't necessarily fit with who they might be at a personal level? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I think the best way to think about this is to recognize that we evolved with these strong moral instincts that are, you know, don't, don't hurt others and, and try to help others and try to contribute and, and whatnot. But that those moral instincts generally apply within what we define to be our tribe and don't necessarily apply to those we see as outside of our tribe. Mm. And so if you think of a corporation, you know, it's basically a tribe. And if you are a corporate executive, in fact, I recount one of the examples here from the president of, of General Motors, Alfred P. Sloan, who, who was a very famous executive, in fact, one of the most famous in, in the United States for a long, long time. And he basically, well, he, he was asked, shouldn't we be putting shatterproof glass in GM's least expensive cars? Because other, other auto companies are doing that and we're putting them we're putting that glass in our more expensive cars, and that would save a lot of lives when people crash in these cars. And and he said, well, 
I kind of think maybe when we have these issues, we shouldn't be too motivated by profit, but business is selfish. And my job is to protect GM stockholders. And ironically, one of his biographers later talked about how important auto safety was to him. And yet clearly in that in that particular situation, and actually in a lot of other cases when it came to trying to design safer cars, he felt a certain loyalty to others, but the loyalty to others wasn't necessarily to his customers, it was to his stockholders. So the, the corporate structure itself can allow these executives to do things that are solely motivated by profit and still feel like they're doing something generous and and contributing to society. They're just defining society as their stockholders, not the larger group of, of stakeholders. I think that's a really powerful realization is a lot of times we're making maybe more conscious lifestyle choices and decisions for the good of our general public and for our human collective. And they might have that sort of innate desire as well, but they just view this collective differently. So they define their collective as their corporation and their their stockholders, their stakeholders that that is a part of their world. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, are there any examples of at all that you found during your research of individual, perhaps former executives of these corporations that have woken up to their past denial, acknowledged the damages they have caused, and now maybe are even lending their insider insights to the other side for the good and well-being of the larger general collective? Well, it's certainly much more typical to go the other direction, that that even the retired executives are not changing their minds. There's one one former lobbyist for the Tobacco Institute I mentioned who ultimately did feel quite badly about about what he had argued and, and became a critic of the industry when he ended up facing a cancer-induced, uh, or I'm sorry, a tobacco-induced cancer and as he was dying, he, he repented quite a bit. It's not a common thing, and it's not something that I think we we should expect, that right. for the most part, this isn't about persuading people in the industry to change their minds so much as persuading those around them, those who are currently being swayed by their denial, that that they need to change their minds. To be fair, though, there's one case, and I think this is an important one, where the evidence that our chlorofluorocarbons were destroying the ozone layer was getting stronger and stronger. And and we had discovered the ozone hole and ozone depletion, not just in Antarctica, but, but elsewhere as well. And we had these major scientific assessment panels coming out with reports and making it clear that it was from this class of chemicals. And you finally had the chemical industry and DuPont sort of took the lead here. They were the the leading manufacturers of the chemicals in question. And they finally said, okay, enough evidence. We're going to ban, we're going to stop making this product. And they ultimately ended up supporting the treaties and the statutes that went on to, to ban these chemicals globally. And I, and I do want to give them credit for that. But at the same time, we have to recognize that this was not an industry that existed to make those chemicals, it made a lot of different chemicals. And this was a small fraction of their product line. And they were going to be able to make the substitute chemicals as well. And by that time, it was also pretty clear they were going to be regulated anyway. So there wasn't a whole lot of benefit in continued denial. 
And on the part where you mentioned it's very unlikely and very difficult for individual people to change, I believe there's a psychological phenomenon that explains how when we make really impactful and large decisions, even if other people are objectively able to see the downsides of those decisions, we're more likely to rationalize that for ourselves just so we can, I guess, live more at ease with the decisions that we've already made in the past. Oh, absolutely. And and of course, every time a corporation continues to deny it, to deny something, they're sort of digging in their heels and that creates a stronger need to rationalize it. And, and so they, they end up sort of digging in deeper and deeper. And, and there are lots of different psychological mechanisms that come into play here. There's, there's confirmation bias. There's, well, just a whole host of, of tribal biases. There's, you know, wanting to criticize your enemies, wanting to glorify your allies. There's bunker mentality. Yes, there's, there's a lot of, of psychology involved. And I think understanding that is, is something that can help us perhaps reform society in a way that recognizing that recognizes what social creatures we are and how susceptible we are to to rationalizing things. I do try to make a distinction in the book between the kinds of denials that relate to causation and, and facts and the, the kinds of denials that relate more to morality and, and sort of broader rationalizations. So for example, I open the book quoting a, a tobacco executives who a tobacco executive who says, who knows what you would do if you didn't smoke? Maybe you'd beat your wife. Maybe you'd drive cars fast. And I, I think that's the kind of sort of candy coating of rationalization that exists within a lot of these industries so that even if that executive recognized that he was selling a deadly addictive product and maybe he didn't, <laughs> but, but assuming even if he did recognize that, that doesn't mean he had stopped his denial. He moved on to the next stage, which was trying to minimize the impact or argue that if if he wasn't selling this product, other bad things would happen. People are really creative at, at coming up with these good, at imagining these counter-realities. And that's one of the things we see in this book. So to help us understand how we can best move forward across the case studies that you looked at, what were the most effective solutions that we should know in countering corporate denial itself or also the impacts of corporate denial across our society? Honestly, I think we have to look upon this as we have a pluralistic society. We have a lot of different segments of it. And when and you kind of need all of them to do their job to overcome a, a really powerful, entrenched industry that's in denial. And, and I'm not saying you overcome their denial, but you overcome the, the impact of their denial on society. So you need independent scientists who are gathering evidence or or independent activists who are gathering evidence in the case of for example the the slave trade you know you had abolitionists out there really getting data so they could bring it before the public you need media paying attention to that you need organizations activist organizations trying to help build movements uh, you need courts to be involved often and, and particularly because the courts can through discovery get a lot of information out into the public you ultimately need 
your democracy to work. You need your politicians to hold hearings. Often what happens is you get you get hearings on the state level. You have laws proposed on the state level that prompts eventually a federal federal hearings and, and federal laws. I'm thinking, of course, from a, the perspective of the U.S., and it'll be different in different countries. So I wish I had a silver bullet here to fix this, but but I think it's really helpful to remember that, yes, industry is big and industry is powerful, and it's profit-driven, but there are other segments of our society that are driven by other motives as well, and they are also powerful, and we need them to do their jobs and and to support that. And then to wrap up our conversation before we go into our final five fire round questions, what would you recommend that we do as individuals to help counter the impacts and false debates and public confusion coming from corporate denial? So, you know, maybe we're, when we're coming across people who've bought into these false talking points, what actions can we take as individual people to help address this situation as a whole, other than gifting people your book? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a great place to start. Um, right. Well, it's it's hard for me to differentiate how we behave as individuals from how we behave as members of a society. So my answer is going to probably bleed into that. But but certainly, just talking to people, hopefully patiently and and with facts at hand certainly helps. I mean, we we need to change the social norm and face-to-face communication with others is a really important part of that. And then I think just trying to remember that we are members of this society in a lot of different ways. So so something as simple as, say, subscribing to a podcast or paying to support independent journalism, that's really important becoming members of organizations that that are, are watchdog groups that are trying to monitor corporate behavior. That can be really important. Ultimately, voting for people who, who understand these issues and, and will work in the public interest, that is also very important. So I, I think looking at the whole panoply of things that we can do and looking at ourselves not just as individuals, but as consumers, as investors, as citizens, as members of, of society generally, I think that's important. We all are strong people Working hard every day and night Trying to make the world peaceful And we won't give up without a fight We're gonna help those who are in need Yes, we believe they can succeed Overcoming obstacles every day You'll be okay, you'll guide the way Don't matter big or small, we're gonna do it all That's who we are, yeah, we'll make it far, yeah Passionate for some change, things will not be the same Built on trust, yeah, this is us, yeah What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, a book I am rereading now is called The Age of Empathy. And this may seem like a surprising answer. The subtitle is Nature's Lessons for a Kinder Society. And and it's written by a primatologist named Mm -hmm. Franz de Waal. And he studies animals and, and he has documented all kinds of acts of empathy 
from those animals. And the reason I find that really inspiring is that classical economics tries to teach us that human beings are selfish and we want to promote our self-interest and, and that's our main, well, in fact, they would argue that's our only motivation, recognizing that that's not the case, that in fact, we are deeply social creatures, and that's biological, and, and we're like other primates and other social mammals. I think that's really helpful, because then you realize that, yeah, of course, we have selfish instincts, but we also have these really strong pro-social instincts. And if you're trying to imagine how to change a society... It, it really helps to realize that you're not countering human nature, you're building on human nature, you're just building on the better side of human nature. And I think that makes it possible to, to imagine a better world and, and move toward that. And, and it makes it a lot easier to, to try to picture the progress that we're all working toward. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I usually end up looking back at the past and at all the progress that different movements have made over time. I think that's very inspiring. And I mean everything from, you know, abolition and civil rights and the women's movement and the environmental movement, the labor movement, just recognizing that that people have taken on great odds in the past and they really have made progress. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I would have to say that it is not letting myself get too deeply immersed in the news that that I, I in any one day I can only take just so much information from the outside world and and trying to eventually just unplug turn that off and focus on my own little piece of the world that's sort of what I need to do to, to keep the stress under control what are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Well, honestly, I'm, I'm trying to promote industrial strength denial. And I did write this book in the hopes that it would help us understand this problem and maybe make some reforms someday to reduce it. And, and so I'm hoping to get people to pay attention to it. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? I think right now what makes me most hopeful is the the rising awareness of climate change, the I should say the climate crisis, because of course that is how we need to be thinking about this now, and particularly among young people. I mean, we, you know, I've been tracking this issue for a long time and seeing it ignored year after year, and particularly during the presidential cycle, seeing it ignored, seeing it rise to the surface now, that gives me a lot of hope. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Barbara's work and her new book, Industrial Strength Denial, which is available now, you can head to www.barbarafreeze.com. That's B-A-R-B-A-R-A-F-R-E-E-S-E.com. Barbara, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your expertise and learnings. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I guess my final words are just remember that Social change, you know, you can be working for something for years and it feels like nothing's changing, but then you reach a tipping point and things change very quickly. That's not a reason to relax. It's a reason to keep pushing, but, you know, change can happen very quickly.